Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting February 28th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, who gets to speak for science? That was the subject of a really interesting session at the recently concluded annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Our own Wade Gibbs was one of the presenters, and he'll tell us about the session and his particular discussion. We'll also share some reader mail, and in honor of the Oscars, we'll have a movie review. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Wade Gibbs. Wade was a senior writer for Scientific American for many years. He's now a contributing editor for the magazine and is on staff at Intellectual Ventures in Seattle. That's a company devoted to invention, founded by former Microsoft chief technology maven Nathan Mirvald. At the AAAS meeting, Wade was part of the session "Who Speaks for Science: Scientific Authority in the 21st Century." To find out what that was all about, I called Wade in Seattle. Hi, Wade. How are you? Just fine. Hi, Steve. Hi, good to talk to you. Tell me about your uh, your AAAS session. Tell me about the whole session and, and your particular comments when you were uh, up there at the lectern. Uh, the session I participated in was on scientific authority, how it's constructed, how it's used, and how it's battled over in the market for ideas. Uh, we had four presentations. I talked uh, a little bit about how the media define scientific authority in its everyday work and participates to a certain extent in the construction of scientific authority. There was a presentation by Linda Billings of the SETI Institute, that's the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, uh, reporting on the outcome of a study she did about an episode at Harvard where a researcher started studying alien abductions. The researcher involved took a rather credulous approach to this research and wrote a book about it without bothering to publish the results in the peer-reviewed literature first. And this was John Mack at Harvard? This indeed was John Mack at Harvard. And the, uh, the research that Linda Billings did looked at how the media responded and more or less raked Mack over the coals for violating these tacit rules of how a scientific authority ought to behave. Authority, in this case, being anyone who is on the faculty at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Because the, just, just being on faculty at Harvard in the public's eye makes you a scientific authority. Yes, indeed. Harvard and a few other schools are in that stratosphere of academia where the name alone carries significant enough cachet to uh, confer a special mantle of respect. Well, let's get a, a quick rundown of uh, the other speakers, and then let's go back to what you were talking about. Uh, Rebecca Slayton at Stanford University gave a very interesting talk on research that she has done on uh, software in missile defense and how she tracked how through the 1960s all the way to the present, there's been this debate about the role of software in missile defense and uh, whether it is even in theory possible for the the software that's written for uh, systems such as the Patriot missile defense system or the Star Wars system that, that Ronald Reagan pushed to work reliably because there's no way to test it short of you know starting a nuclear war which nobody seems to want to do so in order to convince people that uh, yes this can absolutely be done or no this is impossible the various parties have had to make claims 
So what were, uh, what were her findings about the quality of the arguments that were used on both sides? She found that both sides appealed to mathematics and the rhetoric of the physical sciences in arguing either that absolutely software can be made sort of provably reliable or one can prove that it is impossible to build software of this complexity and have faith in its reliability. And the language they used was very similar. But in, if you look at the, the arguments in detail, their analogies largely fall apart. There's not really a good correspondence between software and mathematics or these physical sciences. And these so, people were on both sides were really aiming their arguments at voters and policymakers rather than other software uh, code writers or, or mathematicians, probably, right? Slayton was arguing that this is an example of a repeated frequent practice, especially on Capitol Hill, of tapping into this credibility that scientists have, especially when they speak in a certain language, mm -hmm. and taking advantage of that to push one's own point of view. So the key thing there is to sound authoritative and trust that your audience is not going to have the capability of really understanding the quality of the argument. That's it, essentially. The, the, the scheme seems to be to take on the appearance of uh, a good, sound argument that's based on fundamental scientific laws and observations, even if what one is arguing is actually a bunch of assumptions and guesses. Right, and you see this to a uh, to a really extreme degree in the whole creationism arguments, where they'll they'll use uh, you know a few people with PhDs and and use scientific sounding jargon to put forth a completely non scientific viewpoint. Indeed, and David Kellogg of Northeastern University, who is actually an English professor there, and therefore an expert in rhetoric and the subtle uses of language did an analysis on just that phenomenon, the the use of, of, of subtle rhetoric by intelligent design advocates in mm -hmm. Kansas, where there's been this battle over the science standards and, in fact, over the definition of what science is mm -hmm. uh, by the school authorities in Kansas. Uh, Kellogg analyzed the amendments that the intelligent design proponents wanted to make to the definition of science and there was a, a a very interesting attempt to replace the the criterion that science seeks natural explanations for phenomena with the criteria that science seeks acceptable explanations for natural phenomena right and this very subtle change is sort of opening the door to supernatural explanations, which, of course, they, they ne never come out and say outright that they're seeking supernatural explanations. By those standards, astrology would have had to have been considered to be a science. And alchemy. And alchemy. And phrenology, and a whole bunch of other very interesting episodes right. in scientific history. A, a recent, or it probably wasn't a recent, it was a, a rerun of The Simpsons that I happen to be watching. Uh, Professor Frink referred to astrology as the Tampa Bay Devil Rays of the Sciences. <laughs> Which is only uh, funny if it, if it were a science, which it isn't. But anyway, let's talk about your particular discussion there. What does the media consider to be a scientific authority? Well, there are a number of components to this. One, of course, is the most trivial, is that we take as authorities what scientists themselves 
have already decided our authorities. And they, they communicate this to us by first giving these particular scientists a lot of money with very big labs. So they're people at the tops of their departments or their research institutions. They are authorities and to scientists and they become authorities to the media as well in some cases. Right. But there's more to it than that, of course, because there are practical considerations if you're in the media. You have to be able to get somebody relatively quickly on the phone or by email, and you have to be able to use what they tell you in your stories. So that means uh, those people who tend to respond well to uh, reporters' queries and who tend to be rather quotable, to make good analogies, to use short sentences, to recognize when they're using jargon and stop it, (laughs) to Mm -hmm. explain things in plain English. Those are much more useful as as sources for journalists, so they tend to be quoted more. And, of course, the more they're quoted, the more they become famous. And fame, of course, is always a powerful component of authority in any field, science included. So the the caveat there for the, let's say, for the television watcher, is if you see a scientist actually being interviewed on television, be aware that they're the scientist who perhaps was the one who answered his phone or her phone that day and is able to construct a uh, a pretty decent English sentence. Somebody who may be much more well-informed on the particular subject at hand than that person just might not have been available or might not be able to speak in ways that regular people can understand. In fact, that's, frankly, the norm in science. It's It's the exception that you find somebody who is eloquent about their research and who is a, who is willing and able to talk intelligently about other groups research as well and that's another component that I talked about in my presentation which is trustworthiness access is is great but for experienced science writers and science broadcasters trustworthiness is a key component to authority too we tend to go back to those sources that we have a sense are not just spinning us. They're not just feeding us publicity information for their own self-interest, but are conscientious about pointing out the limitations of their work, about pointing out unanswered questions that uh, still need to be answered before you can put what they've discovered into use, and about pointing towards other groups that are doing good work, maybe even contradictory work, in the same field. Mm-hmm. And of course, now, we've worked in print for a long time, and, and the print situation may be quite different from the broadcast situation, and it may be quite different depending on what kind of schedule you're on. If you're on a monthly publication schedule, it's very different from being on a daily publication schedule, where, as you said before, you know, you just might need the first person who answers the, the telephone that day. Those of us who work for, for monthly magazines and and publications have this luxury that we can actually find out. We have the time to check what a source tells us against what's been published in the literature and other sources of information. So we can really uh, dig much more deeply than can, as you say, that that journalist who has to turn something in by a four o'clock deadline. Yeah. So uh, again, the caveat is if if you're if you're reading Scientific American, chances are it really is a a a good authority on the subject. If you're watching the local news and there's been a uh, 
an epidemiological story that came out that day, and they're not talking to the actual author of the study. They're probably talking to the local uh, person at the, you know, at the nearby hospital who, who might have read the abstract of the study and might be able to say something about it. It's worth bearing in mind, you know, as a consumer of science news, that it takes a couple of hours to carefully read a single scientific paper. And if you want to really check that paper, so look at the references it cites and see whether it's appropriately building on previous work, and if you really want to check that the statistics were done properly and that the conclusions match the data that was collected, that takes a full day's work. So, uh, you know, you, you were talking about Ronald Reagan before. To quote Ronald Reagan, trust but verify. Exactly. Speaking of, uh, you know, politics, you're going to be testifying before Congress soon. What's that all about? This is a, a rare opportunity for, for a journalist, and that's to talk with policymakers directly uh, in Congress itself. I'll be speaking at a hearing of a subcommittee on energy and water development in the House of Representatives. This is part of the House Appropriations Committee. They are in charge of deciding how much money to give the Department of Energy every year. And as part of their budget deliberations, they have formed this hearing to consider a 10-year outlook for energy. So they're very interested in finding out about what the prospects are for existing and also new technologies for producing energy over the next decade or two. I've been invited to talk because I contributed an article to the special issue, Energy's Future Beyond Carbon, in last September's issue of Scientific American. My article was called Plan B for Energy, and it covered uh, an array of futuristic technologies, some of which have already been proved and are actually going into commercial use, and some of which are nothing more than the gleam in the proponent's eye at this point. Yeah, I remember reading that article. It's a very interesting article, and it's it's up on our website. People can access it at siam.com. It's well worth reading. Going back to the, the first subject, uh, on February 27th, there's a contest in Dublin. Uh, six postgraduate fellows will be explaining their research before a live audience, and the winner is the one who explains it the best in the clearest, most simple English. Without scientific I heard about jargon. That. Yes, that's a tremendous idea, and I think it should be replicated at every single university across the United States. And they should do it for faculty as well. In fact, they should do it especially for faculty. It should be a condition of tenure, in my opinion. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, and the listeners may be interested to know that we are scheduled as we are talking right now. That contest has not yet occurred, but we are scheduled. I've been in touch with those folks. We're scheduled to be interviewing the winner of that contest for next week's podcast. Terrific. Wait, great to talk to you. Thanks very much. You too. Thanks, Steve. Again, Wait's article in our single topic energy issue of last September was called Plan B for Energy. The entire issue is available at www.siamdigital.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is Totally Bogus. Story one, early Europeans couldn't digest milk. Story two, for the first time in over 200 years, a beaver has been spotted living in New York City. Story three, simply opening the windows appears to help decrease the risk of airborne infections. And story four, a new kind of car paint includes an enzyme that breaks down bird droppings. We'll be back with the answer, but first, 
We got mail from a listener named James Wyatt in response to something on last week's podcast. I was talking to Karina Wu on the podcast about some other stories from the AAAS meeting when she said, This year happens to be the 20th anniversary of a really groundbreaking report that was released um, looking at racial disparities in where hazardous waste sites are located. This was um, 20 years ago, 1987. And uh, back then, it was a study commissioned by a civil rights organization called the United Church of Christ. And um, it kind of looked at how uh, hazardous waste sites were tended to be located in neighborhoods with high minority pop- populations. Mr. Wyatt wrote in with the following. I was amused to hear journalist Corina Wu describe the United Church of Christ as a civil rights organization in this week's Siam podcast. It might be that, among many other things, but it is, first and foremost, a church. It's a church with a long record of social involvement and work for justice, like many of the other mainline denominations in the U.S., Mr. White went on to say that it might be nice to give credit to a religious denomination that is perfectly comfortable with the findings of science, to which we say, Amen. Reminds me of something the late Stephen Jay Gould once wrote, and that was, The enemy of knowledge and science is irrationalism, not religion. And now... In a titularly related subject, I want to tell you about a movie I happened on on HBO last week. It's called Something the Lord Made. It's not a new movie. It came out originally in 2004, but I never heard of it till last week. Maybe you haven't either. It's the true story, which begins when segregation was still commonplace, of Alfred Blaylock, a prominent white researcher and surgeon, and Vivian Thomas, a talented African-American who became Blaylock's laboratory technician. But Thomas was much more than that. He really co-invented and perfected groundbreaking surgical procedures, including those that went into the first cardiac surgeries ever performed in the 1940s. And Thomas also had to deal with institutional racism on a daily basis, which the movie addresses in many subtle ways. There's one scene in which Blaylock, played brilliantly by Alan Rickman, and Thomas, also played brilliantly by Mos Def, are so engrossed in a conversation about their research that they together walk into a men's room that is clearly marked whites only, which greatly disturbs a white guy already in the room. There's a lot of little things throughout the movie. It doesn't bash you over the head, but it constantly reminds you that this this was an undercurrent throughout that period of time. The film also does a terrific job of capturing the process, all the thrills and long hours of boredom and hard work, that go into scientific and medical discovery. There are extended discussions of anatomy and physiology and really dramatic scenes of actual surgical procedures. By the way, the title, Something the Lord Made, refers to a true incident in which Thomas had invented and performed a procedure in a laboratory animal called an atrial septectomy that's repairing a heart defect. Blaylock felt the repaired heart and asked Thomas if he had indeed done this because he said it was so beautiful, it was like something the Lord made. I checked. The movie is repeated on one of the HBO channels, HBO Signature, multiple times in March. Go to www.hbo.com slash films slash STLM for something the Lord made. And while there, you will find a link to the entire National Magazine award-winning article by Katie McCabe, 
on which the movie is very faithfully based. I read that. It's very good. I highly recommend it. Something the Lord Made is also out on DVD. They've got it over at Netflix. Find it. Watch it. It's terrific. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, early Europeans were not able to digest milk. Story two, beaver found in New York City. Story three, open windows helpful in decreasing the risk of airborne infections. And story four, car paint dissolves bird droppings. Time's up. Story one is true. Looks like Europeans couldn't digest milk till relatively recently in evolutionary terms. DNA analysis of skeletons dating back some 7,000 years finds that the gene for the enzyme to digest lactose is nowhere to be found. Today, 90% of northern Europeans have the gene, which was apparently advantageous enough to rapidly spread once it appeared. The study is in the current issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. You can read more in Nikhil Swaminathan's article on our website, www.siam.com called Not Milk. Neolithic Europeans couldn't stomach the stuff. Story two is true. A beaver has built a small lodge along the banks of the beautiful Bronx River inside the New York City limits. Amazingly, the little guy's home is actually on the grounds of the Bronx Zoo. I went there Saturday. It's not far from my home to see if I could spot him. I didn't catch a glimpse of the actual beaver, but I saw his lodge and some of his handiwork or toothy work. There are cone-shaped stumps and a couple of felled trees with cone-shaped bottoms along the banks of the river. I'm heading back to do an on-site interview, which we'll play next week, hopefully with the beaver, but probably with one of the people at the zoo. In the meantime, check out the Siam blog, blog blog.siam.com, which should have some of the photos I took of the beaver's lodge and his lumber-cutting exploits along the Bronx River, just a few hundred yards from Interstate 95 and the elevated Bruckner Expressway. And story three is true. Airborne infection risk goes down in rooms with good ventilation as a result of just opening the windows and doors. Some hospital areas have new air pumped in, but natural ventilation turns the air over more frequently than even good pumps. This can become a big deal in hospital settings where infected people may be spreading pathogens through coughing or just speaking. For more, check out the Wednesday, February 28th edition of the Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science. All of which means that story four about an enzyme car paint that dissolves bird splats is totally bogus, unfortunately. But what is true is that a new kind of paint for ships seems able to keep the hulls completely free of barnacles. That's according to research done at Gothenburg University in Sweden. The ocean-dwelling fungus Streptomyces avermatilis is poisonous to barnacles. Surfaces covered with paint that includes an extract of the fungus stay clean. And that means that ships could save energy by plowing through the water more smoothly. Unfortunately, Oscar Madison's dentist's barnacle glue remains in the early testing phase. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Scientific American Podcast. You can write to us at podcast.siam.com. Check out news articles at our website, www.siam.com, and the daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.